We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Uh, Church, if you would, please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. If you remember, last week, Pastor Ben took us to the end of chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to pick up a section, starting in chapter 5, where Paul is beginning to describe in some detail and with some practicality how we are to live together, how we are to behave in the household of God. So let's read our passage together. Just two short verses this morning, but they say a great deal to us about how we are to live. Paul writes this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. This is the word of the Lord. The good news of the gospel is not merely that we are saved from the penalty of our sinning. The good news of the gospel is not merely that we are delivered from the wrath of God against us. Of course, those things are absolutely essential to the proclamation of the gospel. Christ really is our sinless Savior who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and pardoned from our sin. That's something we treasure deeply as Christians. That's something that that stirs our love and our affections for Christ Jesus. In fact, the song we just sang a moment ago, in that song, we rejoiced in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But the story of the Christian life does not end with what we are saved from. The gospel is also about what we are saved to, And what we are saved for. Jesus did not die only to wipe away our negative balance. He died also that we might receive an infinite surplus of divine grace and blessing. And as part of this infinite surplus, the gospel tells us that one of the things we receive in Christ is a new family. We receive a new family. No longer do we belong to the course of this world. No longer do we follow the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we once lived. That was our old family. That that was the family that, that we were born into. But when the gospel came into the picture and when it caused us to be reborn, we were rescued from that satanic household. Our old family ties were broken once and for all. And we were brought into a new household. We were brought into the household of God. And in this new household, we have God as our father. We become his beloved children. We're no longer alienated from him like we once were. No, the cross took care of everything that stood between us and God so that now now we are invited to come into his presence with confidence. Now we are invited to abide at his table where we experience what it talks about in 1 John chapter 3 where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. 
that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Friends, in a world of competing identities, in a world where all sorts of of human identity markers are contending with one another for supremacy, this is our identity. It's the identity that we as Christians prize above every other. If you are in Christ, then you are a child of the living God. You are dear to the heart of your heavenly Father. To him, you're not just another face in the crowd. No, he sees you. He is directly present in your life. He is perfectly attentive to your daily needs. In other words, your new life in the household of God, this this new identity that you have received as his child, all of this is incredibly personal. It's personal. it's, It's more personal than you could ever know, more personal than you could ever fathom. And yet that identity, even as it remains intensely personal, that identity is never individualistic. The gospel is never only about you and God, because listen, There is no such thing as a Christian who is an only child. Those who belong to the Father, they automatically, by default, end up belonging to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, the Christian life brings not only a new father and a new disposition, but also new family relationships. As children of God, we cannot be solitary, isolationist, and individualistic. Just as we are to live in the light of our new father's presence in our lives and the new dispositions that he has given to us, so we are to live in the context of our new family membership. The question that lies before us today in 1 Timothy is how do we do that? How do we live in light of our new family membership? I mean, that's that's the entire point of this letter, is it not? Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says this, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how you are to behave in the household of God. So what kind of behavior are we talking about? We know that in Christ, we are members of this household. He's gathered us here today. So now what? What's next? Well, just look at our passage and notice where Paul begins. He begins, of all places, with how we speak to each other. He begins with how we use our words. Verse 1, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Apparently, that's something that Timothy needed to hear. Don't forget what Timothy is facing. Don't forget that he is in a harrowing situation. He was on a collision course with the false teachers in Ephesus. You got to think, Timothy probably was imagining in his mind, this is a no-win situation for me. This could go very poorly for me. And on top of this being a harrowing situation, Timothy is dealing with it as a young, inexperienced church leader. In fact, Timothy was so young that the older folks in Ephesus tended to be dismissive of him. They tended to snub him. Timothy, what what do you know? You're just a kid. You're going to come in here and tell us what to do, what to think? Who do you think you are, lad? This is why Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, it's going to be hard. It's going to get frustrating. But Timothy, don't lose your cool. Don't fly off the handle and say something that you're going to regret. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 1, to not rebuke an older man. When, When Paul says this, he's not talking about like the good kind of rebuke. 
He's not talking about what we would understand as constructive feedback. Instead, what Paul has in mind here is violent words. Words that harm. Words that tear down and destroy. Proverbs 12, 18 talks about this very graphically. It says that that some people's words are like sword thrusts. That's That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about blowing up on someone. He's talking about verbally assaulting another person. And Paul says, Timothy, don't do that. Don't ever resort to those kinds of words. Instead, Paul wants Timothy to be known as an encourager. And so he tells them, Timothy, when you speak up, make sure that the words that are coming out of your mouth, make sure that those words are building people up in their most holy faith. Friends, what Paul is saying here is incredibly important for us. Because the way that we speak to each other in the church carries incredible weight. So if there's one thing that we need to major on in our relationships around here at Emmaus, it needs to be encouragement. This should be something that we are fluent in. This should be something that is natural to us. Encouragement in Christ should form the lexicon for this new family that we're a part of. And Proverbs 18, 21 shows us just how much this matters. It shows us that really encouragement can mean the difference between life and death. Because life and death, it says in Proverbs, are in the power of the tongue. The book of James goes so far as to say that if we neglect encouragement, if we neglect to bless other people with our words, then what could end up happening is our tongue could end up being set on fire by hell itself. We could end up being a mouthpiece for the enemy. Or just think about what Jesus said. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So the things that we are saying are actually saying something about us. The things that we say reveal what it is that we believe about God, what it is we believe about ourselves, and what we believe about the people around us. And I think this is true in a general sense. Like the way we talk to everybody matters. It really does. It it matters at school. It matters at work. It matters in your neighborhood. But I'll also say this, that there is an added weight to this when it comes to life in the local church. Because when you factor in our union with Christ, what it means is our words actually take on a deeper dimension. There's there's a greater weight of responsibility when it comes to how we use our words in this context. Like when you address me as a fellow member of this congregation, I need to understand that there is a sense in which it is Christ who is addressing me. I'm not saying that I should worship you as I worship Christ, but I am saying that the Christ I worship genuinely dwells in you. As my brother, my sister, you are genuinely united to Christ. And what that means is you genuinely represent him to me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book, Life Together. He says, Christ made us into the community of faith. And in that community, Christ made the other Christian to be grace for us. Now each stands in Christ's place. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Christ became our brother in order to help us. And through Christ, other Christians have become Christ for us in the power and authority of his commandment. You can see why this matters so much. When the church gathers, it's 
It's not just a group of people getting together who, who happen to think along the same lines. It's not a group of people getting together who have similar affinities in life. No, what's really happening when we get together, when we gather in this place week by week, what's, what's happening is that Christ in me is coming into contact with Christ in you. We gather to represent his word to each other. We gather to represent his presence to each other. And one of the ways we do this is by the things that we say, by the words that come out of our mouth. This is why Paul tells Timothy, focus on encouragement. Be fluent in encouragement. Like if there's going to be one theme for every interaction you have in the church, it should be that. It should be encouragement. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't just say, okay, go encourage people now. He doesn't just like leave it ambiguous like that. But what Paul does is he actually starts putting his finger on the different kinds of relationships that Timothy is going to have in his congregation. And Paul does this so that he can define encouragement in light of what he's been saying all along throughout this letter, that the church is the household of God. So those older men that Timothy was tempted to be frustrated with, and exasperated by because they were belittling him over his age, Paul says to Timothy, hey, listen, encourage those men. Encourage them like you would your own father. And, and those older ladies who, who like to, to pinch Timothy's cheeks and tell him, you remind me of my grandson, and give him a casserole. Paul says those older ladies, encourage them like you would your own mother. What about those younger men and women who, who are wide-eyed because their whole life is ahead of them? Paul says, Timothy, gather those people around you and encourage them like they're your own siblings. You look at these verses, and Paul is saying, encourage these people like they're your own crazy, weird, oddball, messy family because that's what they are. This is the new family that God has given you. This is home. These fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, they belong to you, Timothy. And you belong to them. Friends, what Paul is saying here is something that Jesus himself modeled. There was this one time when he was teaching a, a group of people who had gathered to hear him and, and someone comes in and, and disrupts the teaching and, and cuts Jesus off and says, hey Jesus, you're going to have to shut down what you're doing here because your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus says something that I'm pretty sure no one who was there that day ever forgot. He responded to this by saying, look around. Look at the people in this circle. These are my mother and my brothers. Because anyone who obeys the voice of my father becomes my mother and my brothers and my sisters. That's profound, friends. That's profound for how we should view the people in this room. Like, like when you look at the people around you, the first thing that you should see is family. Think about it this way. The gospel gives you new lenses with which to view the people around you in the church. We need the gospel much like I need these glasses. Without these, I am blind as a bat. You are just an amorphous blur to me. And, and, and God forbid that I get behind the wheel of my car because that would be like very dangerous for everybody. But when I put these on, like when these rest on the bridge of my nose, I can see you clearly. I can see you for who you really are. I can see you as a child of God. I can see you as a co-heir of Christ. 
I can see you as a dwelling place for the spirit of adoption through whom you cry, Abba, Father. I can see you as a brother or as a sister with whom I will spend eternity. That's how I see you. But here's here's the problem. We do not always see each other the way that we should. Sometimes our new gospel lenses get scratched up by sin. Sometimes they get smudged by the fingerprints of worldliness. And when this happens, our field of vision can become quite distorted. There are times when we as brothers and sisters in the household of God, we do not see each other the way that we should, the way that we were meant to. And this can be especially true and painfully true when it comes to those who are different from us. We learned earlier in 1 Timothy, back in chapter 2, that God saves all kinds of people. He saves people of all cultures, all nationalities, all ethnicities. He saves people from all kinds of backgrounds and all walks of life. So let's say this, one of the greatest blessings of life in the local church is learning to know and to relate to people who are not like us. Like what a profound blessing that is. But I think we also need to be honest about this. We need to be honest and say that even though this is one of the greatest blessings of the church, it's also one of the greatest challenges in the church. Sadly, when you look at our history as the people of God, we have not always risen to this challenge. God gives us people to love who do not look like us or who do not think like us, who do not come from the same kind of place that we do. But what we end up doing is we end up sinning against those people. We end up failing them. We struggle to understand them sometimes because of our own blind spots. We do not treat them as we should. In fact, this is one of the main problems with the human condition to begin with. That we naturally prefer sameness over difference. The gospel offers us a lens because we come into this world preferring a mirror. Left to ourselves, we don't, know, we don't always know what to do with difference. We're often at a loss for how to relate to people that we don't understand. And so what we do is we end up fearing them. We end up pushing them away instead of inviting them in and embracing them and loving them as a brother or a sister in Christ or as an image bearer of the living God. You guys, this is something that the church has struggled with from the very beginning. I've heard it said so many times, we need to be more like the early church. We need to be more like the church that we see in the book of Acts and the church of the New Testament. But you know what? That's probably true in a lot of ways. But here's the thing. The New Testament church really struggled with this. The early church did not always get this right. The churches in Corinth and Galatia and Rome, all of them experienced a lot of strife, a lot of difficulty. And it's because they were composed of people who were from different places, people of different backgrounds, people who were different than each other, and those people did not always know how to get along. There were sibling rivalries. And this was something that the church in Ephesus was not, they were not immune to this either. Because Paul mentions two things here. He mentions age, and he mentions gender. These are the two human identity markers that Paul brings up in these verses, age and gender, because both of these have often served as barriers to meaningful relationships in the church. Like when it comes to age, it is often the case that older people and younger people are unintelligible to each other. 
They don't understand each other. The older generation complains about the younger generation. The younger generation complains about the older generation because they just don't get each other. It's like talking to an alien. And pop culture in the United States and in Europe has really played this up over the past several decades. Let me, let me give you just one example. I was talking to someone the other day about how when I was a kid, I used to listen to music by the classic rock band, The Who. Anybody ever listen to The Who? Does anybody know who that is? All right, a few of you guys do, like six of you. Well, if you don't know anything about The Who, you just need to know this. One of their most popular songs, probably the most popular song they had, was a song called My Generation. In this song, there's one line where the lead singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, who is ironically now almost 80 years old, he sang these words, I hope I die before I get old. Now, we could write that off as stupid lyrics from a silly, you know, non-serious rock song from the 60s. Nobody's basing their philosophy of life on Roger Daltrey. Hopefully not. But here's the thing. When I heard that, that lyric as a kid, what I automatically assumed was that young means good, relevant, cool. Old means bad, out of touch, lame. Now, I wasn't about to go up to my grandmother and, and start telling her that, sharing that with her. But I think there was a genuine sense in which that kind of thinking made me afraid to get old. It made me afraid of the aging process because I was wondering, like, am I going to be, am I going to lose my ability to contribute something? Am I going to lose my ability to be cool, to be, to be relevant? This is something that the author Henry Nouwen talks about when he says that the fear of becoming old in our Western world is for the most part determined by the fear of not being able to live up to the expectations of an environment where you are what you can produce and achieve. I can't help but wonder if this, story, this sort of thinking, this, this thinking that says you are what you produce, what you achieve, has this crept into the church, you think? I mean, when I, when I go on YouTube and I pull up a, a video of like a famous worship team from a well-known church. They're, they perform their music in this, in this video. You know what I notice about every, every last one of these videos? Every person on those worship teams looks like they just stepped straight out of an Urban Outfitters catalog. They're young, they're hip, they're attractive. And what this insinuates is that that's what we value. We value youngness. We value hipness. We value attractiveness. That's our value system in the church. That's, I'm not saying it is, but that's what that insinuates. That's what that implies. But the Bible provides us with a much different value system. When the Bible talks about aging, it doesn't speak of it as something that should be feared or avoided. Instead, the Bible speaks of aging as the fulfillment of a life well lived. It speaks of old age as a gift that should be honored and revered. Listen to what Leviticus 19 tells us. It says that to honor the face of an old man, to honor the gray hairs on his head, to honor the wrinkles on his face, to honor all of that is to fear the Lord your God. Because those gray hairs on that man's head, Proverbs tells us that that is a crown of glory gained by a righteous life. So I think one of the things we should aspire to here at Emmaus is to build a culture that honors our older brothers and sisters. Let's affirm them for the gift that they are. I think this is something we should also do for the youngest among us. We should do this for our children. Our contemporary culture is far too impatient to slow down and appreciate the gift of both children and the elderly. And I think this is because 
we have often tethered human value to mere utility. What can you produce? What have you achieved? How can you contribute to the bottom line here? I mean, so much in our world today gets measured this way. But not in the church. May it never be so in the household of God because those things are not what make us valuable in the eyes of our heavenly father. We are not valuable to him because of how well we can perform. I mean, for crying out loud, he is almighty. He is the all-powerful Lord of the universe. He doesn't need us to perform. Like our performance, even at its very best, does not add anything to him. So you know why we're valuable? We are valuable simply because we belong to him. We're valuable simply because he has decided in his sovereign mind that we are his children. As an earthly father, I I don't love my kids because they've done anything impressive with their lives. I don't love them because their performance is always stellar. In fact, I I often tell them this. I don't love you more when you do something good. I don't love you less when you do something bad. I love you all the I love you the same all the time for no other reason than that you're my kid and I'm your dad. So even my my clumsy, inconsistent love for my own kids, even that is a faint whisper of the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. And it is his love that determines our worth, which means that the church has never been and never will be a utilitarian enterprise where you have to earn your keep. We are not destined to be employees that churn out a profit. That we, whether we are young or old, we are destined for one thing. We are destined to be sons and daughters of the living God. Speaking of sons and daughters, Paul also mentions the reality of gender. This is another area where our field of of vision can become quite distorted. There's an old saying that goes, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We've all heard that saying. I think this comes across in movies and TV shows a lot of the time where you see a portrayal of like a middle school dance. You know, and, and it's really awkward because, like, the music is, you know, the music's pumps like, <laughs> and there's, like, lights, you know, that are moving, and yet the atmosphere doesn't really live up to the, the standard of fun that you're supposed to be having, you know? Because on one side of the gymnasium, there's, like, huddled together a group of teenage boys, and then there's, like, the yawning chasm of the basketball court, and on the other side of that, the, the girls are, are all congregated, And I can't help but wonder if the church has often been like that. I can't help but wonder if the the church is a lot like a middle school dance, but just with less puberty. It's like we've emphasized the differences between men and women so much. And there are differences, okay? I'm not saying there aren't. But we've emphasized those differences. We've played them up so much that we can end up forgetting how much we need each other as brothers and sisters. Listen, I'm not talking about needing each other for procreation or marriage. Men and women do need each other for that. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is that we need each other for things like spiritual friendship. We need each other for gospel partnership. We need each other for what Pastor Ben was talking about last week when he said that we are to train each other for godliness. Friends, our training for godliness, our our Christian discipleship is not gender segregated. It's not perforated between male and female. No, this is something that we are to do together. And what this means is that for me and for every other male believer in this room, we need our sisters in Christ. Sisters, we we need you to train us. And brothers, that's what our sisters need from us as well. They need us to help them train. If I can refer back to what Pastor Ben said last week, this is a group workout. 
For Ben, I, I hope you don't mind, but I might change it just a little bit to say this is a family workout. This is a family workout. But for this to happen, for this to be a family workout, something else is going to have to be required. That's what Paul says in verse 2. He tells Timothy to encourage the younger women as sisters. And then Paul adds just three words. He says, encourage the young women as sisters with all purity. Now, this is something I, I think we have to be really careful with. Because there are people who would look at the middle school dance version of church that I've just described. And they would say, that's purity. That's purity. Men and women staying largely separate. Men and women having very selective interaction. That's what some people understand purity to be. Trust me, I read a lot of commentaries that, this week, and that's what comes across a lot of the time. And the underlying assumption of this is that if you allow lots of room for relationships between men and women in the church, it's not going to lead anywhere good going to lead to a bad place. It's going to lead to, to unnecessary temptation. But that, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And I, I don't think that, that that's what Paul has in mind when he mentions purity here. I cannot possibly see how Paul could mean that brothers and sisters should be wary of each other. Think about the entire context here. Paul is telling Timothy, hey, those, those younger women in your church, encourage them like you would a sister. You cannot encourage someone that you're avoiding. So the idea here is that Timothy should have meaningful relationships with his sisters in Christ, but those relationships, in order to be meaningful, they should be marked by purity. Listen, if we're, if we're going to train each other for godliness here at Emmaus, this is something that we really need to take to heart. We have to be attentive to the way that we are interacting with others. I think one of the great things that life in the local church does for us is it teaches us self-awareness. This is something that I think we could all use more of, me included. We need to be pressed into asking, how is my presence affecting you? How are my words affecting you? Are my words and my presence, are these things spurring you on to holiness? Or are they having some other effect? Listen, if your relationship with me is not causing you to become more holy, then I need to step back and take a good look at how I'm approaching the Christian life because odds are I'm really missing something. I'm not seeing the whole picture. In 1 John, it tells us that we are God's children. We saw that earlier. But John goes on to say that because we are his children, when we see the Lord face to face, we're going to become like him. And then John says something really interesting. He, he says something that fascinates me. He tells us that anyone who hopes in this, anyone who hopes that they will see the Lord and become like him, anyone who hopes in that will purify themselves as the Lord himself is pure. Friends, our assurance that we are children of God comes from the reality that as we hope in God, we are being purified from the defects of our sin. We're being cleansed. From the stains of our old self, we are putting on the new self, our, our purified self, that Christ is continually washing in the pure water of his word. And Paul is telling us that, that one of the main ways we can see this happening, one of, the, one of the main ways that we can know that Christ is purifying us is in the relationships we have with our siblings in Christ. Because if I'm pursuing holiness, as your brother, and I'm not going to want to do anything that's going to violate my relationships with my siblings. I mean, God has been so gracious. He has graciously 
taken me out of the filth of my old life. He cleaned me up. He dressed me up in the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son, and he brought me into his household. Knowing that God did all of that for me, how could I ever want to do anything that would harm my family? How could I ever do anything that would harm this household? Friends, let us plead with the Lord to make us pure, to make us holy, to to cleanse us from the defilement of sin so that we can be the family that God calls us to be. If we love God as our father, and if we love Jesus as our elder brother, then our prayer should be, Lord, make us pure. Cleanse us from any motive or any intention that would harm this family. Everyone needs a family. Every last one of us needs a place of rest and belonging. A place where we are truly known and truly loved. God God calls us, he's calling us this morning, to cultivate that kind of environment for each other here in the church. So I just want to end here this morning by saying a couple of quick things about that. The first thing I want to say is that the church is where our adoption in Christ is definitively affirmed. We all come into this world as spiritual orphans. Our sin alienates us from our purpose. It alienates us from the God who made us, from the God who invites us to call him Father. And so what has God done? He has overcome this alienation. He has overcome it by giving up his son so that he could declare over us, you're no longer separated from me. You're no longer separated from your purpose. You're no longer an orphan. You are my child now and forever. That's who you are. And so there's this, this decisive thing that happens with this where we, where we walk into the front door of our new home and God's presence greets us. He enfolds us in his embrace and he tells us, you're safe now, you're home. But what happens is shortly after this, we're, we're still kind of getting acclimated to, to life in our father's house. And as we're getting acclimated, As we're adjusting to this new life, we have moments where we're not so sure that we belong. Doubts creep in, don't they? You start wondering, like, am I really who God says I am? I still struggle with a lot of the same things that I I struggled with before. And to be honest, some of, the, some of the siblings in this new house, I'm not so sure about. And you know what? It's, it's been a little while since I felt God's presence in my life. And in my more honest moments, I wonder, did I just make this whole thing up? Like, am I so starved for fulfillment in my life that I, I've just imagined this whole Christianity thing? In those moments when thoughts like that are swirling around in your head, when those thoughts are assaulting your faith, you and I, we need someone to look us in the eye and say, no, stop it, you're adopted. That's that's who you are. You're part of this family. You're my brother. You're my sister. Don't believe the lie that says you still might be an orphan because I affirm you. As your brother in Christ, they're There are times when I need you to tell me that. I need you to to say that to me so I can step back and go, oh yeah, you know what? The people in my church, they really love me. They really know me. They, They know the things I'm going through. They know what I'm struggling with. They know my sins, my faults, my weaknesses. They know all of that, and yet they are still willing to affirm me. They're still willing to call me brother. They're still willing to say, you're a part of this family. And when you tell me that, and that, that's, that's good enough for me. I, I can rest in that. Friends, this is the greatest gift that we can give to each other here in the church. The gift 
of assuring each other, of affirming each other, hey, you are an adopted son. You are an adopted daughter. You belong to God. And this is because, this is the case because of what the church is. That's the second thing I want to say. The church is our home away from home. Now, for many of us, the idea of home, it's a complicated thing. The idea of home is a hard thing to imagine. Because many of us come from family backgrounds where we experience the pain of a father or a mother who was absent. For some of us, this was a, a physical absence. One or both of your parents were not around. You didn't really get to know them because they weren't really present in your life. For others, this was more of an emotional or a spiritual absence. You, you longed to have a, a loving relationship with your parents. You loved to be affirmed by them. You, you longed for that, but they, this was met with coldness. This was met with distance. They withdrew from you. And you begin to realize, I don't know if my parents really care about me. If either of those is your experience, if that's a wound you carry with you today, then let me just say something on behalf of this church. Let me be the voice of this church for a second. You are loved here. You're part of Emmaus. You belong here. You're a valued member of this household. You matter to us. I love what Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 10, that whoever enters the kingdom of God, having lost or left behind families and homes for this, you will find these things 100-fold in the church. That's the promise of Jesus, that, that the church is a place where we pray you will be able to find mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers who deeply care for you. We pray most of all that your experience here at Emmaus would point you to the love of your heavenly father. In an age where so many are fatherless and, and where father hunger is rampant, we want every person who walks in the door of this church to find the embrace of the father, to receive his fatherly care and attention. In a moment, we're going to come to observe the Lord's Supper. Every home has a table. And the household of God is no exception. The Father is inviting us today, come to the table. Come to the feast that I have laid before you. So if you know that you're a Christian, and you find yourself longing for the love of the Father today, then look no further than this table. There's bread here for you. There's a cup here for you from which you can drink. And that bread and that cup is to remind you that your heavenly father sacrificed his very best lamb so that you could be invited to the family supper. And, and you're invited not as a, a visitor who will be expected to leave at some point. No, you are invited as his true child. You are invited to stay with him. You are invited to abide with him. So if you're in Christ today, you're not going to wear out your welcome with the Father. Not going to happen. And yet, here's the other thing about that. If you are not in Christ, you're not a Christian, then I want to say as gently and as graciously as I can, we can't ask you to come to this table with us. Because as I said, this is, this is a family meal. This bread and this cup, they will mean nothing to you you do not belong to the Father today. So, instead of coming to the table, we want to plead with you, call upon God, and ask him to become your Father. If you ask that from the heart, he will gladly accept with zero hesitation. He won't hold out on you. He won't refuse you. Though in him, you will find a love like you've never known before.
For those of us who will come in a moment, I'll ask you to do what we typically do. We'll come down the aisle on this side of the room over here. We'll begin coming from the front row and then we'll move to the back of the room. The last row will go last. We'll come down here. We'll walk across in a single file line that just helps with traffic flow. And then you, you can go this way back to your seat and take the elements with you where you'll observe the Lord's Supper. And after that, of course, we'll sing another song and we'll be dismissed. But before we come to the table, before we enter into this time of communion with the Father, would you bow your head with me and let's go before him as his children. Heavenly Father, you have brought us out of the orphanage of this world where we once lived as sons and daughters of disobedience. And yet we praise you today because you've opened wide the doors of your household. We're invited to come in and, and to pull up a chair next to you and, and feast at your table on the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. We can feast on him to our heart's delight. Lord, I pray for those who feel the absence of a loving family. I ask that you would comfort them. Remind them today of your fatherly care. Give them assurance through us, your people, that in Christ they are loved with an everlasting love by a father who will not leave or forsake them. And the love that you have, God, is greater than our past. It's greater than our history. It's bigger than the wounds we carry. It's bigger than our unfulfilled longings. It's closer than the pain that we feel every day. God, would you redeem every second of our lives for the honor and glory of Jesus' name. It's in his name we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.